The horde swarms over and down the hill, a hundred screaming monsters out of hell. Archers unleash their first volley. Dozens fall and are swallowed by the churning tide of death. Your front line lowers their lances, and the two forces meet with the clash of metal on metal. That or something like that is what you envision, but the reality is more like a five-on-five skirmish, less hordes swarming via a hundred million dollar budget, and more you and your friends making pew-pew noises while shouting, I got you, no you didn't. After the last podcast, I realized there was more to combat encounters than I covered. More I should have said, so this is part deux, building combat. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. I believe the game part of RPGs should be about replicating the story mediums that inspire them. Less simulating reality and more recreating the feel of the story medium it references. For example, superhero RPGs are replicating the feel you get in comics, or the feel you get from a cartoon series. Masks, what I regard as the best superhero RPG around today, replicates the TV series Young Justice. D&D represents a lot of mediums, and over the years, those mediums have changed. Way back in the 70s, it replicated the novels of Appendix N. Howard's Conan, Vance's Dying Earth, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Lieber's Fawford and the Grey Mouser. But as time progressed, more books came out as well as movies. Eventually, the Dragonlance novels exploded onto the scene, which was a strange blend of the game inspired by the books become books which inspired more games. Movies like Willow with decent special effects came out, and eventually we have the Peter Jackson Lord of the Ring movies. The impact they have on the game is real. I think skill challenges introduced in 4E are, in part, an answer to how the game can replicate more complicated film sequences, like the chase through Moria in Fellowship of the Ring. Combat rules suck for chases. Sidebar, the only time I ever ran a chase that I liked in an RPG was using Dungeon World. But combat rules also fall down for certain kinds of combat represented in fiction. Notably, mass battles, and heroes versus tons of bad guys. I'm about to run a big combat with the PCs fighting alongside the remnants of a village versus a small horde of ghouls. As I noodle on it, there are a number of things I want to try out within the 5e rule set to enhance this session. When last we left our heroes, the goal was to retreat across a bridge to gain a more defensible position. They'll have to protect the weaker members of the village, hold off the ghouls, and buy enough time for the village survivors to get away. I could map this out and try to manage it through the standard 5-foot square grid, but the 6-second round is just impractical for this type of encounter. Plus, I want this to be more abstract. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, I'm looking to move towards more theater of the mind. While I have used skill challenges from 4E, I like the idea of them more than the reality. In play, I find skill challenges to be a bit forced and repetitive. My plan is to use the Warfare system in the brand new Strongholds and Followers supplement from MCDM Productions as a means to facilitate this session. I'll be using it not exactly as intended, but because it is an abstracted system, I believe it will work. In the Strongholds and Followers Appendix, there is a system for conducting mass battles. It's intended to represent armies clashing, so presumably hundreds or even 
thousands of soldiers on the field of battle. I'm not at that level of size with this battle, but since everything is an abstraction, I thought it would be easy enough to just use the system to represent dozens rather than hundreds. I don't want to give away their secret sauce or explain everything about the system, although it is set up to be open gaming license, which is kind of cool. But it essentially distills down a military unit into a very simple, card-sized handful of stats. Units are comprised of race, type, equipment, and experience. Units attack, they do damage, and can force other units to check morale. Broken morale is the same as defeating the unit. You do not move units on a grid, but assume the unit is being led and maneuvered as needed on the battlefield. What and how they can attack is determined by the type of units involved. For example, archer units can attack any other unit, but they attack cavalry units with disadvantage. Fortifications can only be attacked by siege engines. I think of it as a complex game of rock-paper-scissors, like rock-paper-scissors-lizard-spock from Big Bang Theory. In reading over these rules, I think they have enough complexity to allow for strategy, but remain simple enough that I can teach our group to play as we go, and also teach myself to play as we go. I comprise the town folk of the smallest size unit of cavalry, archers, and green infantry. The ghouls would be split into infantry at the second smallest size, and the smallest size archers, crossbowmen actually and burrowers. I'll have to make that last one up and improvise some stuff, but the system is fluid enough that I think it does more than even just allow for that, I think it encourages it. Because the players and villagers are attempting an ordered withdrawal across the bridge, I'm going to set X number of rounds for that to happen. The first win state is simply surviving long enough to get across the bridge. How much they win by, meaning how much of their forces stay alive, will determine how tough the next phase of the battle is. The next win state is holding the bridge. I'll have to model an entrenched unit that the players get when they're in position on that bridge. Win state is again time-based. They're buying enough time for the villagers to get far enough away. One way they talk about managing the rounds and strongholds and followers is to connect it to player actions in combat. And this is one cool part of their rule set. It can be folded into normal combat. So the PCs are fighting a normal round-by-round -round tactical combat against individual ghouls. At the end of each player's turn, they resolve the actions of the units under their control in the larger battle. I'll assign them a unit on the good guy side, and we'll get to see both theaters of the battle play out in realish time. Since the last podcast, I've been thinking about the intensity level of my game. I'd say I tend to run hot, meaning stuff gets serious quickly. There's usually something pressing on the PCs and conflicts escalate fast. Take what's happening in this town. We started with the PCs passing through, and the point of engagement was the burning of infected townsfolk. Does the fact that I think of this as less intense say something about me? Nah, this is fine. We're fine. Once the party decided to intervene, things shifted from being just a moral decision to an incursion by organized ghouls. Soon it was a town on the brink of annihilation and something that perhaps necessitates warfare rules. Some version of this would have happened whether the PCs decided to stop and help or not. This town was going to be overrun as part of a strategy by the ghouls. What's changed is now the PCs are in the middle of the action versus finding out about this later. However, I am concerned about not giving my players enough white space. 
an opportunity to portray their character as part of downtime, but also as part of engagements that do not necessitate going nova. In combat, this is about balanced encounters, and having balanced mean a moderate challenge. My self-critique wonders if I am good at easy and hard, but not so tuned in as to develop truly moderate encounters, which are neither a cakewalk nor a frantic fight for life, but remain interesting. So what the HE double hockey sticks is an interesting encounter. My frame of reference in answering that question are the encounters where I got a visceral reaction from players and where I responded as a player. Good and bad. What do they like? What don't they like? I have seen repetition fail. I have taken them to the gates of death multiple times, and I believe there have been diminishing returns. Also, the last big bad combat did great in the beginning, but petered out in the second half of that combat when it changed location. Subverting expectations has worked well. A recent encounter with an intellect-devourer-controlled troll, say that ten times fast, played well. Smart tactics of the adversary, coupled with the off-kilter maze location, made things resonate. Except for Bruce. Sorry, Bruce. Also, emotional stakes work well. We had a battle at a farmhouse where the goal was to save the elderly couple inside, and I'd say we had a couple of memorable moments in that combat. This ties into the idea of having goals that are not kill everything on the board. So many times, this is what combat becomes. But if you add in an objective that is not about combat per se, you open up options other than fighting and just killing everything. When I'm a player, the thing I want is to realize my character concept. Not just my class, but the core essence of what my character is supposed to do. The last character I played extensively, actually in Grayson's game, was a failed military officer trainee. He was a leader who sucked at following regulations. The ultimate moment for him was against the Shadow Demon, where he enraged it enough to concentrate attacks on him so his allies could bring it down with readied ranged attacks. In my mind, that told a mini-arc for the character where, for a moment, they got to be their best self. Thinking on the players and PCs in my group, I have Bruce playing Sativa. She's a druid and a battlefield controller. When Bruce can reform the battlefield, pin down opponents, and change the nature of the test, I think he's most satisfied. Grayson, playing Jarrus, he likes to talk to things. Of course he does. He's a bard. He wants to negotiate and see if there's an alternate path. A tall order with ghouls, but he tries to do this all the time, and I think I haven't been good enough about supporting that pathway. Next is Joe, playing Bren. He likes to do gobs of damage to things i.e. a half-orc fighter, and to enhance his perceived heroism. I think he wants to get the respect of the townsfolk, to be their hero. The hero of Canton, the man they called Jane. Mike, playing Constantine. He's an interesting build, a ranger who runs like a rogue. He's all about hiding and striking from the shadows before breaking out his hammer and working things out in melee. He enjoys finding an opening and extracting every bit of advantage out of it. And Taylor, playing Voss. She likes to unleash her power. She's waiting to just cut loose. She tried this in the last session and terrorized a boy she was trying to help, which was not the desired outcome. The challenge ahead of me is to craft a scenario that is not so gonzo difficult, but is no cakewalk, to make it goal-focused, subvert expectations, and build emotional stakes, especially for Constantine. Emotional stakes are very important for him. 
I'm kidding, he's a murder dwarf. I can hear him saying he's practical. And he's right, little Russian mobster. I've been looking to port in 4th edition minion rules. I think they're perfect for building a moderate and balanced set of combat encounters. Simply put, these are standard adversaries in almost every way, save that they have only one hit point. The intent is to be able to throw a lot at a party without it being too overwhelming. I plan to let the PCs know this ahead of time. I don't believe the spirit of the minion rules is to trick players into using their major spells or abilities on minions, but to let them wade through a horde like in the movies. The ghouls I'm using from Tome of Beasts are perfect for this translation. They have a solid AC, I can trim down their attack options to make them more straightforward, and then just run them with one hit point. I'll blend ghoul minions as shock troops being led by non-minion ghouls. The goals of these skirmishes will echo into the larger battle, so the PCs will attempt to prevent flanking maneuvers, protect civilians, draw fire to open opportunities within the battle, and each of these theaters of operation will feed off of each other. At least that's my hope. What all this means is running four or five or more quick skirmishes, each with their own goal. The ghouls are trying to outflank them and block easy access to the bridge. So one skirmish will involve a subset of ghouls moving to do just that. If they get into a certain position, then I'll give the ghouls a modest bonus on the warfare subgame. I think there should be a detriment to a morale check on the good guy's side if the PC should fail. Or maybe inversely, it's a bonus to morale giving folks a, a bonus rather than a penalty is actually a better design. Then there are proactive goals, like hitting the enemy at their flank to gain their side a bonus in the Warfare minigame. There are a lot of fun opportunities to switch back and forth from the minigame to tactical PC combat. Lastly, I always want to inject role-playing opportunities. It's important that I highlight a few NPC villagers that players can care about or even serve as little mini-villains. In military fiction, the blowhard officer risen to the level of their own incompetence is a tried-and-true trope. We can have someone giving bad orders that the PCs have to rectify, ultimately perhaps removing them from command. It's worth noting that I'm comfortable winging combats on the fly. 5e is a very simple system at its heart, and a lot of what I propose exists with a built-in safety net. I don't have to build out detailed stats for the villagers, whether they be lancers on horseback, archers, infantry, civilians. It's easy to apply a simple bonus to hit, damage, armor class, and hit points. I'll be working with a plus zero to plus five range of hit bonus, depending on if it's a pure civilian, up to one of their elite soldiers. Damage is weapon-based. Armor class will be from 10 to 14, again based on if it's a civilian or a trained soldier. Hit points might be one for the infirm, up to 40 if it's one of their best elite trained warriors. These bands are pretty easy to navigate. So I almost never sweat the mechanics of the game. I focus on the enemy tactics, points where things can twist off their track and become different, and how I can enhance the drama. I bring this up because I know not everyone is very comfortable with the mechanics in the game, and what can easily happen is the mechanics eat up all of your mental bandwidth, and you don't get to manage the stuff that you see the celebrity DMs doing online. You know, plot and drama and funny voices. 
So I made a thing, and we'll link to it in the podcast description. Just plotting out the stats I quoted, it's easy to use as a template to stat out simple combat participants. This won't work for beholders or complicated baddies, but it can work for humans, goblins, orcs, etc. I think when you see it, you'll see how easy it is to perhaps hold in your head and quickly wing parts of a combat without having to be looking at stat blocks all the time. I want to conclude this point on why I think this is important. If you're listening, chances are you care about DMing. It's important enough to spend 20 minutes or so listening to me drone on about it. Which means I'm guessing we're beyond the timid DM stage. That thing where someone wants to DM but is intimidated and needs to hear how easy it is. DMing is not hard, but it does have a spectrum of performance. You know what a great DM performance looks like. Hopefully you've been in a game with one. If you haven't, you at least can watch Perkins, Mercer, or now Colville. In D&D, combat is an area where the game can, forgive me, suck. Watch Matt Mercer in particular. His combats do not suck. They're awesome. I've noted two key things he does. First, his descriptions are evocative and animated. He stands up when running a battle. He's performing. It's high energy. Second, he's fast. And you'll maybe see why I'm bringing this up. When it's your turn, it's urgent. When it's their turn, it's urgent. He's not looking up stuff or really pausing at all to look at what the bad guys can do. This lets him speed the session up versus slow it down when a battle is raging. His mental focus is on what is happening, not the math behind everything. So being able to hold battle stats in your head is a very useful tool if you want to bring your battles to the next level. I don't mention this to discourage anyone. I'm not great at this, but I work at it because the outcome is worth the effort. You'll get a lot of bang for your buck improving your ability to run combats faster. I'm dying to see how this plays out between the warfare rules, minions, the crossing of tactical and strategic level battles, theater of the mind, and I'll be sure to include a report out in the next podcast. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. But wait, hey, I got a review on iTunes. Shout out to Forrester994. You're too kind. Please, anyone, don't hesitate to reach out on Twitter at anatomycamp, email via phil at campaignanatomy.com, or to like, share, subscribe on whichever platform you prefer. I also started a subreddit, r slash campaign. There's a link to that in the description. Remember, it's all fun and games until someone dies anticlimactically by falling down a 50-foot pit trap in a kobold barrow. Then it's fun, a game, and schadenfreude. Thank you for screaming with me on the way down.